prayers for her. She has a tendency to get bronchitis, and I really don't want this to go to a walking pneumonia. So, if you'd encourage the Lord to intercede on her behalf, we'd be grateful. We have a number of people who are absent today because of COVID. It has uh, taken its toll. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we bow in your presence this morning to say thank you for the grace of God that has appeared in these last days to grant us salvation. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to see uh, and understand your word. <clears throat> Pray your spirit may be our teacher today and that I might say nothing that does not comport with your spirit and your word. And Father, that everything that's done is said and done for the edification of the body. Thank you, Father, for who you are and what you do. And I just pray today that you'd be pleased to meet with us, meet with us and to open your word to our eyes and enable us to understand. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the last time you'll get this particular summary. Um, turn to the book of Ephesians, if you would. We have several new people here today. And um, <clears throat> so Hutch and I were talking about authorial intent yesterday. And let me explain briefly what that is. Authorial intent is what the what the intent of the author of the book you're reading. What was his intent? Now, the difficulty is <clears throat> we don't know what he was thinking. All we know for sure is what he wrote. But, if you study his background, and you know his culture, and you know who he was married to, and what kind of arguments they had, a lot of times when you read what he said, it will help you understand what he meant. So clearly, uh, historical background is very beneficial to arriving at that. But just remember, a thorough intent is ultimately hedged in by what they wrote. That's all we have, is the words that they penned. And we assume <coughs> that every single word that they penned was there by the wooing of the Spirit. So, <clears throat> what you're going to hear for the next five to eight minutes is what I think the author had in mind when he sat down to pen the book of Ephesians. This is what he wanted to say in the way he wanted to say it. I can't guarantee that's true, but after 50 years of study, I'm pretty sure this is what he was after. So, here we go. He was trying, remember, this is the Apostle Paul, toward the end of his life, he's in a Roman jail, and God has given him the privilege of birthing a number of churches. Remember the book of Acts is basically a story of his life in many respects. And you see what he has done. <coughs> he has watched 
the birth of the church. He was there in Acts 2 when it happened. And he had to figure out what in the world was going on in, in Acts 10 when the first Gentile was entered into the church. He had to assimilate that and understand what God was doing. And so he's in this Roman jail having put it all together and he is now wants to write it and he's looking for the biggest platform he can find to disseminate this truth that he has amassed and the biggest platform for him would be the church at Ephesus because that's where he had his longest, most fruitful, most impactful ministry. And so he pins his letter to them recognizing it will go to the church and they will send it to Colossae and Laodicea and all the other churches surrounding it. And so, in essence, it's a circular letter, and he's well aware of that. That's why you don't get any personal, um, tell Judas, hi, and Jacob, no, and nothing of that at the end of the book, because it's written as a circular letter, more of a treatise. <clears throat> so, two parts. First part, the revelation. God wanted to open this up. The revelation, the second, actually three parts, the revelation, one to three, the administration, four, five, and the first half of six is the administration. This is how you administrate what he's going to reveal, how you work it into the church, how it fits into your lives. It's the administration of it. <clears throat> and the last half of six is the defense of it. So it is the revelation, administration, and defense of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. He starts off in verses 1 through 13. 1 through 14. Starts out 1 through 14 and says, let me give you the character of the church. And so he outlines six different characteristics that are common to everybody that belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. First characteristic is you were chosen. Second characteristic is you were adopted as children. Third characteristic is you were redeemed. Fourth characteristic, you were enlightened. Fifth, you were enriched. Last, you were sealed. Those are the six characteristics or character traits you could identify with every single person that belongs to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes after he very briefly discusses those six when he declares these are what the church is comprised of, that you're not going to understand it completely. It's just way too much of a bite to assimilate totally. And so starting in verse 15, he prays. And he prays, first of all, he thanks and then he gives he gives thanks for them for their faith and their love. And then he prays, and he, in his prayer, he utters three purpose clauses. <clears throat> because it's very important to him that you understand what he is praying for. And so the first purpose prayer that he prays is um, verse 17. 16, he says, no, I don't, he's giving thanks for you while making mention of my prayers, <clears throat> that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to angel a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So he recognizes Trey is not going to grasp it all. He says, God, I want Trey to have wisdom 
in revelation. I want you to open his mind. I want you to give him wisdom about what I want you to reveal to him. And so the first one is an enabling prayer. I, I want to enable him. You get to the ultimate prayer, and just the ultimate purpose in just a minute. The first purpose is an enabling purpose. The second purpose is actually also an enabling purpose, which intensifies the first one. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, stripped bare, clean, taken. He recognizes that we come with hearts that are sinful and lazy and anything but diligent. And he says, Lord, strip all that off. Give them, an eye, give them the heart to see. So, and it, that's in verse uh, 18. You'll notice that in your Bible, the first three words are in italics. I pray that because that's not in the original. But the editors of, in this case, the New American Standard Bible, says this is what he had in his mind. So they have added, and I think they're right, it makes it into a, an intensive uh, enabling prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. So that third purpose, ultimate, this is what he's after. This is what, this is what he wants Anthony to know. I want you to know what is the hope of your calling. Everybody in this room that knows Jesus has been given a calling. And he says, I want you to know what is the hope of your calling. Secondly, I want you to know what is the riches, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. Because as a part of the body of Christ, you get an inheritance. What is that? And lastly, what are the surpassing greatness of his power toward you who believe? I want you to know his power. So he's going to talk about your calling, your inheritance, and your power. Now, in order to do that, because he, he really wants you to understand that, and this is where you have to follow closely, the rest of chapter 1, which would be 18 through 23, um, 19 through 23, he says, What is the passing of power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And then he gives this expanded illustration of God raising Jesus from the dead. And that illustration is an illustration of God's power. He can take somebody who is literally just walking down the street and he is dead. He gets hit by a car and he's dead. And I'm going to raise him up and seat him at my right hand. Now to be seated at the right hand of God is essentially equivalence. And he is going to make him equal in authority and power with God the Father. How much power does that take? It said it, God made the heavens with his finger work. That was finger work. To raise Aaron up to be seated with God, that takes arms. In fact, he uses three different words. The working of the strength of his might. So incredibly difficult to do. It takes three different Greek words, talking about power, to execute that. So that's the third thing he promises. That's the power. And everybody in this room has access to that power. And you want to build, why are you not any better than you are? And that's a good question. And I ask myself that question 
way too many times every day. And I know what's the answer because I don't access everything I could. I just don't. I am a lazy bum when you get right down to it. But if I did, I have unlimited power available to me. That's the power. Now, because it was the third question, and geographically is located right adjacent to it, he just finishes chapter one by answering the power. Now he's going to go back and start down sequentially and answer what is the hope of your calling. So Jordan is going to turn, recognizing the hope of my calling starts in chapter two. That Jordan, not this Jordan. Starts in chapter two. <clears throat> and there's two parts to the hope of your calling. First part is, that you would understand it is the grace of God. He starts off by saying, you are so blind. You are, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, <clears throat> according to the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air is Satan. And he has control of this world. This way, in fact, uh, St. Corinthians calls him the God of this world. He has control. This is his, his baby. If you think God doesn't have control of this world, look around you and ask yourself, how can we get in such a terrible mess in this nation? Because Satan is at work to destroy everything that you think is wise and good and holds dear. And he has done it so effectively that you don't even recognize it. Feminism was based, birthed by Satan himself. And it started in the garden. That's when the battle was laid down, the lines were drawn, and God told Eve, okay, you're going to want to replace your husband because you want the throne, you want the power, you want the reins, you want to be able to say, I call the shots. And it's been a struggle and is a struggle today, and feminism is just one of Satan's main avenues of achieving the destruction of his family. So, <clears throat> Materialism, the, the, the rampant, all of the things that, um, anyway. Yes. Yes, Keith. The one thing I think that we also need to keep in mind is the fact that what we have in Christ is of value. And if it wasn't of value, Satan wouldn't work so hard to destroy everything that it stands for, to include marriage, home. And you're so right. You think, you think the drug problem, the alcohol problem, the sexual abuse problem didn't come and influenced by Satan? He takes those basic urges and he just magnifies them. And you wrestle and wrestle and wrestle with that stuff. And you can, the, the battlefield is littered with men and women who have lost the battle. But your soul's worth something because a king died for it. Are you right about that? And you've only got this much time and the window's closing. So, we were trying to get Jordan's, the hope, of her, the hope of the calling, two things. He says in verse 7, he says, uh, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Verse 7 is the purpose. So this is the first thing that Jordan needs to know about the hope of her calling. So that in the ages to come, we might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now he goes on to finish 
in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And the word workmanship is the word for poem, poema in the Greek. And it's like he has drawn a picture or created a sculptor, and he is going to take Shemiel and set her up for all eternity. And you walk by and you say, oh my goodness, look what God did there. What a work of grace. She should have been a greasy spot in the street. But instead, he worked incredible powers. And, and so the first thing is, Francisco is going to be a trophy of grace in the hall of grace. That's the first part of your calling. Second part of your calling is the second paragraph in chapter 2, and that's in the last two verses, capture it in chapter 2, and how far behind. And then the whole bill is being fitted together, going into the holy temple of the Lord, and whom you also are being built into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And so, he is making Reagan a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And she needs to walk around every day, everywhere she goes, and she needs to think 20 times a day, I am carrying God. God is dwelling in me. Now, Abraham, Isaac, Jason, Moses, none of those guys ever even dreamed of carrying God within them. They longed for his presence. It was, to be a friend of God was wonderful. But to think that I am going to have God walking around inside of me? Unbelievable. Never dreamed of it. That's why he says in the first of three, I have never revealed this. Nobody's ever seen this before. Now it's new and I get to reveal it to you. So that's the whole of your calling. And the last one, which we'll cover completely today, <clears throat> is the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. Two parts, just like there was in chapter 2, two parts in chapter 3, <clears throat> 1 through 13 is the first part. And the purpose in verse 10, uh, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So God is going to use Josh to testify to Satan and his minions that in the midst of enormous pain, great handicap, you can walk with God. You can trust Him. That's what His inheritance is. I get to be God's cheerleader to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I get to say to the, to the good angels, hey, you are so right not to choose Satan. And I get to say to the bad angels, look, I'm proving that God is right and God is wise. And he has chosen, and we used um, Johnny Tata last week, who's a paraplegic. And she said, because she grasped the import of it, and she said, Satan, look at that wheelchair. That does not prevent me as a paraplegic from walking, following, serving Jesus Christ. That's the first half of your inheritance. Today we come to the second half of your inheritance. Now, <clears throat> take your first sheet, this first down, 
and it's Levi, you happen to be a table captain. They didn't tell you about it, but you can be a table captain anyway. Uh, man, you were bright. You picked all four of them up. Smart table captain. Pass those four down. And <clears throat> you'll notice that these are what I call a worksheet. It's a grammatical layout, and you see it again and again and again. And I do a grammatical layout on every passage in Ephesians because Ephesians is so dense, so content, the fog content is so high, you can't hardly see your hand in front of your face. It's so hard to follow his logic. So if you write it out in grammatical form, now I can follow his logic. Now, looking at that with me, you'll notice, here's what he says. And Matt, wherever you are, would you read four, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21? Now, this is the second half of his inheritance. For this reason, I bow my, my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit, through his Spirit, in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So, now let's look at your worksheet. You'll notice the very top of it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. <clears throat> What's he talking about? When Somebody walks up to Chris Blue and says, Chris, where are you, where are you Chris? There you. And walks up to Chris Blue and says, hey, uh, I'm Joe Smith. And you say, well, I'm Chris Blue. And Joe, what do you do? They want what do you do? What they really ask is, who are you? Who are you? And he says, the first thing he says, because most, look at the very bottom. This is what he's after. That you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now that's where we're headed today. That you, the Jack, Lord, can be filled up to the fullness of God. That's hard to even think, much less achieve. Can you imagine Melissa being filled up to the fullness of God? That's what it says, does it not? Am I wrong? Is that not what Paul penned? Now, in order to get there, the first thing you have to do is I bow my knees for the Father for every family derives its name. I've got to recognize my identity is God. Every family, Jews and Gentiles. All through the Old Testament, separate, 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 separate. I want you to bring in Gentile nations, but I want you to remain separate. Now, nope, tore it down, got rid of the dividing wall. Together, every family in heaven and on earth. 
And so what Paul, I mean, what Chris should say is, hi, I'm Chris Blue. I belong to God. You know Jesus? One of the, <laughs> um, oh, what's his name? Head chemistry professor at Rice University. Uh, brilliant nanotechnologist. Oh, if you go to his website, maybe his name will come to me. If you go to his website, it gives his doctrinal statement about what he believes on his website at Rice University. And on a number of occasions, I've heard him do it, and I've read about it. He walk up and he says, "You say, hey, I'm," and you say, "My name's Cody," and he'll say. What do you think about the personal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? How's that for an introductory statement? That's his, because he knows, hey, everything else is nothing. Let's cut to the quick. I don't have long. What do you think about the personal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? This comes from a full professor. A Brit, they, in fact, when they got him there, they hired him from another university, and they said, look, there's a blank check. You fill it in. We want you to come. And literally, he filled in his salary. But he's, oh my goodness. Anyway. Jim Tour is his name. T-O-U-R. Um, so your identity is in Christ. Secondly, that he would grant you. Now, Standing on that identity, then the second thing is that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now, I notice that's according to, not out of, every single word there by the Spirit, according to his glory. How big is the glory of God? How big is space? That's part of God's glory. How wise, how, how intricate. All of that is God's glory. And he says, I want God to strengthen you according to the riches of his glory. Three things, with power, through the Spirit, in the inner man. Somehow, I, I, I want the inner man of Ron Mason to be captured by the Spirit of God to such an extent that he manifests the glory of God. It's God's power in Derry, and if it's God's power, it will never happen. You may be general, but you will never know the power of God apart from submission to his spirit. So the first thing he says, is you be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Do you know why Hutch sins? I could ask Reagan to fill a sin, but I'm not going to. I'm going to tell you why he sins. He does sin. You think he's a really, he is a nice guy, but he still sins. You know why? Because he says, I don't want to do that, God. I don't want to do it now. I'll do it my way. And God says, I'm going to strengthen you in the inner man so that you be a piece of steel and you make yourself do what you know you need to do. And that, my friend, is a huge assignment. Because everybody, including the turkey standing at the podium right now, wrestles with the inner man not doing what God wants him to do all the time. So, first that, that he would grant you to be strengthened. Second that, that Christ may dwell, third that, and that you may be able. And notice, that's a dual that in that. That, you may, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. 
the word dwell. There's two words in the Greek. No, that's not a good one. And that's not a good one. Pay dirt. Arkeo equals to live. Now, if I want to emphasize that, we prefix a word to it frequently to emphasize. We say very, like run fast, run very fast. The Greeks didn't prefix. I mean, the Greeks didn't add words. They prefixed. So they took the word oikeo, means to live, and put kat oikeo, made one word. That means to dwell. And you spend the night in the motel. You walk in, it's got a picture on the wall, it's got a piece of red carpet, it's got some red furniture. It's, it's barren, basically. But you walk in your home and you can tell what you're like. What you see on the wall, the music you're playing, the smell coming from the kitchen. All the things that, that you do to your home reveal the fact that you dwell there. You don't live there, you dwell there. Does that make sense? And he says that Christ may dwell in your heart. So when he first moves in, he's got some renovation to do. He really does. He's going to take your vocabulary and says, mm, I don't like that stuff. You're going to get rid of that. And he'll start with vocabulary. And then he says, let me see your magazines. Oh, let me see your videos. Oh, well, that's got to go. That's got to go. And he begins to renovate that life. And when he finishes, if you allow him, then it looks like Jesus dwells in that life. The action, and more important, the reaction. Well, the reaction is a real teller. Because all of us can say, okay, I'm going to walk in, and I'm going to be nice to this guy. Hi, Mr. Smith. And recognizing he just threw you under the bus last week. How are you today? It's been nice. And Mr. Smith says, yeah, nice if you're doing such and such. And that's all you... Well, let me tell you, boom, the reaction. The reaction. The first thing out of your mouth reveals who's in control. It always does. They bump into the back of your car and you jump out and the first thing you say is, praise God, thank you for this opportunity, Jesus. Who are you and why did you hit my car? Did you want to meet me? Right? <laughs> no. We're going to lace him. The reactions... And that you may be, be rooted and grounded in love. Um, you know why it's so hard to take kids that come out of really, really bad home situations and turn them into productive parents? Because they never saw it. They didn't experience it. They're now 21, and the only thing they ever felt, I remember a guy that I mentored in Houston, Texas, and he says, my dad would say, okay, go to the yard and get me some of the rose bush. And he'd have to go out and cut five or six stems from the dry rose bush. He'd bring it back in. He says, now put your shirt off. And he would start beating him with the dry rose bush till the blood run down his back. Now, he becomes a dad. Really hard to get rid of all that baggage and do it right. 
And notice what he says here. Being rooted and grounded in love. Oh, that's different. Being rooted and grounded in love. Now I may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the length, width, height, and depth and the level of Christ which surpasses knowledge. You get it? There's a third sheet. The, the bottom sheet, yes. No, this one. Yeah, there's one there. Turn it, pass out the third sheet. It says the love of Christ. I pass this out because if I just read it, it will zing right by me. I want you to take it home and read it again and again. Now, let me tell you where this came from. Have you heard of the Crusades? About a thousand AD, and they had all these guys that wanted to go back and capture Jerusalem, and they send armies down and have these big battles. And if they couldn't get you to say yes, I believe in Jesus, they'd need big, big wars and battles. And so, when the Crusaders hit in Spain, uh, they put a bunch of them in jail. And these guys were fervent for Jesus, but they weren't all anyway. When they opened the jail cells years later, the concrete wall where this guy had been chained, so here he is chained to the wall, and all he can take is a piece of stone, and this is what he wrote in that concrete wall. Can we think the ocean fill and where the skies of parchment made? That is, the whole sky is just a parchment. Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You will never be able to wrap your mind around the love of God. I fail again and again and again and again, and God still loves me. I'll always be his child. His love is so overwhelming, if I ever really grasp it, it transforms my life. Do you know why I don't do things, more things for Stephen? You know why I don't? Because I'm selfish. This is my evening to be, i got to take a rest. This is, I, I want to watch it. The same thing. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. I'm selfish. That's our problem. We look out for number one. I want what's good, what I think is good for me. I want to do what I want to do. And notice what he says. He says, Be ye being rooted and grounded in love, be able to comprehend what is the length, breadth, height, and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. <clears throat> and the final purpose, the ultimate purpose, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now his name is George Mueller. And when he got married, those of you that know his story, he decided, I want to make a dent for God. I want to show people that God is real. And the way I'm going to do that, I am going to give away what little money I have 
So I'm going to be penniless, and I'm only going to ask God for help. I will never ask another person for money. That's it. All done. Over. And he married a woman who stood right with him. Committed to it also. He went to a church. Never asked them what they were going to pay. Never quit whatever they gave him. That's what he got. He never asked. If he needed something, he'd ask God. And then God led him. He saw all these little kids. And, and England had all these little orphans running around. And so he started a little school. And then he said, well, but they don't have a place to live. And so he started an orphanage. By the time he died in the 80s, his 80s, 82, I think, <coughs> he had built five huge orphan buildings and housed 10,000 children. And you know who gave the money for all that? God. You know how many people he asked? One person. God. If you walked up to George Mueller on the street and said, do you need help this week? And you, just imagine now, you got a thousand kids and no money in the till and, and they're fixing to sit down and eat breakfast. And he kept in a very detailed chronicle of all the prayers and I can't remember one of them. The kids were all seated at the breakfast table and all the workers came to him and said, we don't have anything to serve them. He said, my God will supply. Five minutes later, a knock comes to the door. He goes to the door, and there's a bread truck. And he says, this has been ordered two weeks ago, and he passed out bread. And then shortly after that, knock at the door, guy says, hey, my milk truck just broke down, the milk's going to sour, do you want it? Because he asked God. That's what it means to be filled up to all the fullness of God. When he died, he had about $2.83 in his pocket. That's it. Own nothing except the incredible legacy that he had left. That's what it means to be filled up to the fullness of God. To kill that selfish beast that lives inside of me that always wants his way, his time, his self. <clears throat> time for one more. The last part of the verse. Notice down at the very bottom. Now, the glory be to him. Now, you have all, if you've been in church, but you've all heard that prayer. Now, to him is able to do exceeding abundantly with all he asks, you think, to him be the glory. And then you hear, oh, God can do anything. He can turn that statue into a person. He can do anything. Because it says right there, now, he was able to do exceeding abundantly according to the power that works within us beyond all we ask or even think. But that does not mean that God is going to take Trey and bear a child through Trey. That will never happen. I don't care what the trans people say. He is not equipped to nurse a child. He is not equipped to birth a child. He cannot do that. And God doesn't break his own laws. So he's not going to have Trey bear a child. What does that verse mean? I can do exceedingly abundantly above all. Well, look at the context. You may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask even think. To think that one day when I walk in a room, they'd say, 
Man, there's God. That man is so godly that everything that issues for his mouth is only that which edifies. He never hurts. He always helps. Even when it looks like it hurts, it helps. That's exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or even think. One more illustration. Let me read it to you real quickly. Amy Carmichael. She's changed my life. Never saw her. Just read the books. <clears throat> left England. Beautiful girl left England. When she was about 17, went to India. Never came back. Put up an opportunity. She had a thousand girls that she'd rescued because they'd sell children. She bought one girl and named her Sixpence because this guy had her and she was almost, uh, she was starving, hot, hot, hot. And she just, just a little piece of flesh laying there. And the guy said, you want to buy her? I'll sell to you for sixpence. So he bought her. Or Amy bought her. This is Amy's prayer. Oh God, deliver me from prayer that I ask that I may be sheltered from winds that beat on thee, from fearing when I should aspire, from faltering when I should climb higher, from silken self, O oh captain, from silken self, O oh captain, free thy soldier who would follow thee. From the subtle love of softening things, from easy choices, weakenings, not this way, not this, not, by, not thus are spirits fortified, not this way with the crucified. For all that dims thy calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay, the hope no disappointments tire, the passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod. Make me thy fuel, flame of God. Father, we bow in your presence and ask to be nothing but fuel, to burn, Father, for your glory, so that when somebody touches us, they ignite. God, to step beyond our small, selfish world. Thank you, Father, for your word. Pray you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.